Well, then let's turn to the second passage of Scripture we read, the Gospel according to John, and uh, <coughs> chapter 11. And uh, we'll consider the events in connection with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, uh, both in the morning and in the evening. And I suppose the text that will govern us uh, on both occasions will be verse 4, where Jesus says that this sickness, that's Lazarus' sickness, is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But this morning particularly, we'll focus on the words that both Martha and Mary said to the Lord when they met him. And you'll find them in verse 21, from the lips of Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary, as you'll notice later, says exactly the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now the events of this um, chapter just take place a few uh, days really before the Passover, which was to be Christ's last Passover, of course. The whole of the second half of the Gospel of John is taken up with the events that immediately precede the Passover and the crucifixion. Now, of course, every time the Passover came round, it was a time of great spiritual expectation and anticipation, uh, not just in the city of Jerusalem, but in the villages that were round about as well. Some of them we know well, like Emmaus, for example, seven miles out of Jerusalem, and Bethany, we know best of all, just two miles outside the city on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And these villages were mostly quiet villages, but at the time of the feasts there was tremendous expectation, particularly Passover. And that's because pretty much every house would be lodging at least a guest, or maybe a few guests. And I'm sure some of you can remember, like I can remember myself when the communion used to come round. Well, certainly where I lived, the boats would tie up on the Wednesday evening. Uh, people got their houses ready in a special way, particularly when visitors were coming from the north. And there was a general sense of expectation as they were keeping the feast of the communion, the Lord's Supper, which was blessed on many an occasion throughout the islands. Well, it was a similar thing in these villages too. Now, of all the villages around about Jerusalem, there was um, no home as blessed as the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, because Christ himself uh, was their guest. And that was an astonishingly privileged home. To have the Saviour, I would reckon on every occasion there was a festival lodging in their house. But obviously on this occasion, things are very, very different. In this home anyway. The other homes in Bethany would be preparing for the feast, but uh, not this one. On this occasion, obviously unexpectedly, 
the home is overshadowed by Lazarus' sickness. And uh, in fact, the home is just about to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. And Martha and Mary, instead of being preoccupied as they would be in getting the home ready for the visit of the Saviour, are actually nursing their brother, whom they describe themselves as sinking. When they send the message to the Lord that he is sick, the word conveys the idea that he is actually sinking, that he is weakening, ready to die. In other words, they correctly diagnose their brother's condition as being a sickness unto death. Of course, the Lord will say to them that it isn't, but they recognise that that's what it is. Now, in this situation, we would expect them to look to their Lord and to their Master. I mean, that's what we do ourselves, whether the sickness comes to us or it comes to anyone in our family, or if we feel that it might be the valley of the shadow of death, we come to Christ. We come to Christ ourselves, we take our brothers or our sisters or our parents, or our children indeed, to Christ, the only one who can really help. And they are aware that the Lord is on the other side of the Jordan, which is unusually uh, far away at this particular time, but the message that they send is very simple, and it's very powerful too. He whom you love is sick and sinking. Now, maybe it's a strange thing that there's no actual request attached, attached to that message. It's really just a message. It's a communication of a fact. <coughs> if there is a request, it's only implicit in the words. But the fact is that they just leave it at that. I would guess perhaps that underneath that there's a kind of resignation to the will of Christ in the matter. Uh, there's no doubt that they would like him to come. They would want him to intervene and to take away the sickness and prolong his life. But they just leave the matter there, as it were, with the Lord. It's pretty much similar, in a way, to what we saw the Lord himself praying in Gethsemane. If it is possible, he says, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Perhaps it's something similar to that. Our brother is sick. If it is your will, you can come and heal him. If not, then thy will be done. Now, it was God's plan, and this is a plan which Christ is following to the letter. You'll remember that Christ was given the steps in which to walk, as well as the words to speak. And in God's plan, uh, the Lord is on the other side of the Jordan. It may be a strange place to be at this particular time. It's possible that he wanted rest. I'm sure he got an element of rest, although we're told that even here people came to him and believed in him. They said, this is where John the Baptist used to baptise, and he never performed a single miracle. We rejoiced in his word, and we were blessed by it. We were given repentance unto life. But this man has spoken the same and more and performed many miracles. And we're told that even there, many believed on him. 
But it's possible that as well as wanting rest, uh, perhaps the Lord simply wanted a place to be safe and his disciples too. It was um, uh, a time of great danger in Jerusalem. Now, as we'll see in a minute, the Lord was not afraid of that. But there is a time for everything. There's a time to avoid persecution. There's a time to endure it. And the Lord would not walk into the midst of it until it was the right time. For now, himself and his disciples will remain at a distance. But that's where the message comes to him. That the one whom you love is sick. It seems like the sisters were using the love itself as a kind of leverage by which to get hold of the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that. The one that you love is sick and he is sinking. Now I want us to see how the Lord responds to that communication. How he responds in word and how he responds in action. And to see the effect that that has on the disciples just in the passing, but especially on Martha and Mary. Now first, his words. The messengers convey the sickness of Lazarus, to which he responds immediately by saying, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. He says that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, on the face of it, there's an obvious difficulty there. The obvious difficulty is in saying that it's not unto death, when in fact, in some sense at least, it was obviously unto death. But clearly what the Lord means is that the end result of this process is not going to be death. The end result of this process will actually be life. But it won't be life without an intervention. It is leading to death, indeed, but not ultimately, because the glory of God is going to be revealed in this sickness. And what's more, he says, my glory as the Son of God will be revealed in this sickness. So because God intervenes, and because I am going to intervene, this sickness will not result in death so clearly it's not that he will live as such but he will live with the intervention of my father and I this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God that the son of God may be glorified in it now the disciples would have understood these words as meaning that uh, Christ would be going to heal Lazarus, that he was going to intervene. It was not unto death, and Christ would have the glory. And for them, that was a dangerous thing. As we read later in the passage, they were terrified at the thought of going up to Judea, where they had tried to stone Jesus so recently. It wasn't safe to go, and if they were going to the Passover, which they would expect to go to the Passover, <coughs> It would only be safe to go, certainly when the crowds arrived in Jerusalem, there would be safety in the numbers, especially those who travelled from the north, northern regions, where the people were more favourable to the Lord and his ministry.
But although they weren't happy with the idea of Christ going to intervene and to prevent death, they just held their peace. And the reason they held their peace was because the Lord made no move to go. Although he said, it's not unto death, but for God's glory and mine, he stays where he is. But of course, these words were not really meant for the disciples. They were meant for Martha and Mary. They were the ones who sent the message in the first place. Christ responded to that message the minute he got it. In other words, the messengers were to bring these words back to Martha and Mary. And so for them, Christ speaks at least, even if he doesn't intervene immediately with healing, at least he sends his word. And the messenger says, the Saviour told us to tell you this, that this sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God that Jesus himself would be glorified in it. Now I'm sure, and I don't think this is at all stretching things, in fact I think it's self-evident, I'm sure that when they received these words and processed them, they must have expected that Christ was on his way and that he was coming to heal them. And in so doing, Christ would further glorify his name and glorify his Father in heaven. So I think we can take that like that, that they are expecting the Lord to come and prevent the death of their brother. But then Jesus' actions are perplexing. Or maybe to put it another way, his inaction is very perplexing. Because after saying that it's not unto death and that he'll be glorified in it, he stays exactly where he is for two days. And in that two-day period, Lazarus dies. Now, when Christ decides to delay, the disciples are pleased enough with that. And not because of any coldness towards Lazarus. In fact, I'm quite sure that the disciples would have reasoned something like the following. Well, we've seen him heal at a distance before. We well remember when the Roman centurion came to him and begged him that he would heal his servant who was dying. And uh, he said to him, don't come under my roof. Don't trouble me. He says, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but just speak the word at a distance, and I know that my servant will be healed. Now the Lord turned to the people and said, I have not found faith like this anywhere in Israel. You all expect me to be able to touch people, as though I couldn't heal people without touching them, as though I couldn't raise them from the dead without laying hold of them by the hand. But this Roman centurion gives me faith where I would least expect it. Because he knows that all I have to do is speak the word like my father and done it will be without delay. The disciples saw that. So the fact that the Lord wasn't moving to Bethany didn't mean for them that there was going to be necessarily no healing. But for them it was good news because again it was no danger. But if they thought that Christ was not going to go, they were wrong. But after, Because after two days, the Lord says to them, let us go to Judea. 
And they said, to Judea, they want to stone you. Can you not feel the heat in the city, that it intensifies every time you go there? But the Lord makes plain that he's going. He says, there are 12 hours in the day. 12 hours in which the light shines, he says. That's our opportunity to work. That's our opportunity to do what the Father wants us to do. And as long as I am doing what the Father wants me to do, I will have the Father's protection and I will have the Father's deliverance. When it is the Father's will uh, to remove that deliverance and to give me into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, that's fine. But I've got 12 hours in which to work and my call is to go to Judea and therefore I will go. If I don't use my opportunity, if I avoid my duty, I will stumble. Because anyone who walks in the night will stumble in the night. And that, friends, of course, is a reminder to ourselves too that in this life we have a window of opportunity too. There are 12 hours in the day for us as there was for the Saviour. We can decide either to do his work, to do his will, wherever it takes us and wherever it costs us, or else we can try and walk in the shadows. We can try and walk in the night. We can comfort ourselves by avoiding difficulty, by avoiding scrutiny, by avoiding duty. If we do that, we will stumble. And the devil will make a stumble because it means that the light of God is not in us. It's essentially the same thing as Jesus said when he was healing the uh, blind man in chapter 9. Uh, <clears throat> when they passed the blind man, the disciple said, Whose fault is it that this man was born blind? Was it his own fault? In other words, this... <clears throat> Does God know what he's going to be like and therefore he's born blind? Or was it his parents' fault that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. Neither his fault nor his parents' fault, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. That's essentially the same thing. I've got a life to live, a life of duty and obedience, and as long as the 12 hours daylight shines, I will do the will of God through thick and thin. Now, of course, <clears throat> the disciples, um, well, he tells them that he's actually going to awaken Lazarus. Now, when the disciples hear that Lazarus is sleeping, they say, well, that's a good thing. They're familiar as we are with the fact that when anybody's sleeping, it's usually a good sign after they've been sleeping. Just let him sleep, he's doing well, we can stay where we are. The Lord said simply, Lazarus is dead, and I am going to awaken him. And the disciples just seem resigned to that. Interestingly, Thomas says, well, let's just go. He's determined to go, and let us die with him. Uh, maybe this is Thomas being very despondent and gloomy, which is consistent with how we find him uh, after the resurrection when he refuses to believe that Christ has risen from the dead unless he can graphically in the Greek plunge his hand into the wound in his side and see for himself the wounds in his hands. But at least the disciples are saying, well, if he's going to die, let's die with him. At least the resolve is still there. Um, it's pointless to go to Judea and expect to leave it alive. But if he's going to die, let's die with him. And always there you find in the disciples that at least, you know, 
even when that courage does fail, that you can't question the commitment of that heart. I mean, they, their desire to be with the Lord themselves is through thick and thin. If he's going to die, then let us die with him. There's no dissuading him. So that's the effect of the delay on the disciples. Glad at first and sad when he has to go. But the real question is the effect of the delay on the sisters. <coughs> After all, they were expecting his arrival. And I'm quite sure that the people who came to comfort them, primarily from their own village, did exactly the same. I mean, they would have been aware of the message that was sent, and they would have been aware of the message that was received. This sickness is not unto death. And um, <coughs> they were a prominent family. It's obvious that they had significant wealth. You know yourselves that Mary had a bottle of perfume that was worth thousands of pounds. We're told that because the village was just two miles out of Jerusalem, that many came from the city to give him comfort too. So we're a prominent family, a well-known family. And uh, we know that all of them really expected the Lord Jesus to come. After all, some of them said in verse 37, could this man who healed the blind uh, not have healed Lazarus too? So that was their expectation. So for the sisters, as one day became two, uh, the Lord is delaying his coming. And then their brother dies. Now we take it that Lazarus must have been relatively young. I mean, youth is relative anyway. <clears throat> it depends from what point of view you're looking at age from. Ages that we considered old once don't seem so old anymore. Uh, but of course, if Lazarus had been very old, I doubt if there had been the same urgency in the request or the same disappointment when it didn't seem to be given. Uh, it's right for us to value life as long as God gives it. I know that it's a good thing in us always to be ready to go, but sometimes God gives us the awareness that perhaps we're here to stay, and it's important to use our time here well as God gives it. When Hezekiah was told that he was going to die, I mean, he had a sickness, and Isaiah, the prophet, told him that this was a sickness unto death. Hezekiah famously prayed to God that God would prolong his life. Uh, David also in one of the Psalms said Lord take me not away in mid time of my years take me not away in mid time of my years there again David is kind of having a sense that his life's work is somehow not complete I think Hezekiah was much the same at the time the news of the sickness came to him, the threat from the northern kingdom of Assyria was so great and he, he felt that the cause was, was very, very weak um, and that there was a sense in which he, he felt he, he couldn't, as it were, afford to die, if you understand what I mean. Now that, of course, is mistaken things. Um, the Lord raises one up, casts another down, the Lord takes away and he sends another. No one is indispensable in the kingdom of God. There's no doubt about that. And if your desire for living has something to do with the glory of God, if it has to do with the extension of his kingdom, then it's good to desire to live. If we're simply willing just to 
or wanting to prolong our own existence for our own enjoyment or our own amusement, well, that has no place. And I'm quite sure that that's what David wanted to do when he said, do not take me away in mid-time of my years. Paul, of course, famously said that to me, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He said, if you ask me, do I want to live or do I want to die? Well, he says, I'm in a strait between the two. He says, I can't honestly tell you, he says. For me, to die and to depart and to be with Christ is far, far better. But he says, to remain here is more needful for you. And God made that known to him. And therefore he was actually persuaded that he would live. And therefore he's reconciled to be here. And I think we can all understand that. Life is here to live. And if a sickness comes in the mid-time of our days, we may well say, well, Lord, take us if you wish. And I think when it is his wish, he makes us very ready and reconciled to it. And he just cuts our ties as only he can. But if he's not cutting these ties, maybe it's a signal that we need to pray and ask for healing and ask for deliverance, not just for ourselves, but maybe somebody else that you think perhaps can ill afford to be spared. Now, um, that makes me think that perhaps uh, Lazarus himself is relatively young. There is an old Jewish tradition, and you're never quite sure how much weight to attach to these things, that Lazarus lived for 30 years after his resurrection. If so, that would indicate that he's perhaps a man in his 40s or something like that. But in the midst of the morning, there's the perplexity. Why did he not come? Why did he not come? Because we know that if the Lord had come, he would not have died. Did he not say that this sickness was not unto death, but that it was for the glory of God and even for his own glory? Was that not a pretty clear way of saying, he won't die, I'll come and I'll heal him? Is that not effectively what he said? Now when Christ delays, or when he's silent, these things are often a, a perplexity and sometimes his delays and his silences seem inconsistent with his love and with his care. And depending on what it is we were looking for and expecting, we can be quite shattered by the Lord's failure to meet that expectation in the form that we expected it. That's really why I read the account of Jairus who was himself a, a preacher of the word in the synagogue in Capernaum and he of course had heard and seen much from Jesus himself and his 12 year old daughter you remember was dying and uh, when it was obvious that she was sinking which is again what is conveyed in the Greek language he goes and well the, the elders I think other people came first but then he comes himself and uh, the Lord is making headway towards his house. And then you remember this astonishing diversion where the Lord just stops and turns around and says, who touched me? Now, of course, the, the disciples said, well, 
everyone's thronging around you and pressing against you. What kind of question is that? Well, the Lord said, effectively, I, I don't mean just any touch. Uh, I mean a touch of faith, for I perceived power going out from me. And then, of course, there's the pause as the Lord looks around and as um, the woman then comes forward and makes her testimony and the Lord blesses her and so on. All that is wonderful. It's glorious to read of. But for Jairus, it's just a distraction. It's an incredible distraction. Every single second is a precious second lost. That's why he had made the personal journey. Even after sending others, he made the personal journey. And of course, when the Lord starts moving again, there's a second message which says, don't trouble the teacher anymore because the girl is dead. What a disappointment. What a frustration. Why the delay? And of course the devil doesn't take long coming into that kind of situation. And the devil can say anything. He's very clever in the kinds of things he can say. He can say things like, well, surely an old woman's hemorrhage isn't as important as your 12-year-old girl. Why, if someone is going to prioritise people, why on earth would you prioritise the need of someone who's maybe had most of her life with a young girl who's not really begun life? And here, too, it's, why, why didn't he come? And it's hard to get away from that, you know. Why didn't he come? <coughs> First thing we need to know is that the Lord's failure to come has nothing to do with any lack of love or care on his part. And that's communicated to us in a very strange way, a very powerful way actually by John when he tells us what happened. Notice verse 5 and how it runs into verse 6. Now Jesus loved Martha, Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. <laughs> that's, that's quite strange. We would have expected that to read, Now the Lord loved Martha and her sister and Jesus, and therefore he immediately went to them. No, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. Now John tells us right at the beginning, as it were, that Christ loved them. And it's John's way of saying, whatever happens now, and what the Lord, whatever the Lord says and what, what he does, and however much what he does especially appears to conflict with this, let's understand at the outset that he loved them. And John says, let me put it to you as starkly as possible, he says, it's because he loved them that he stayed where he was. Now how instructive is that? It reminds us that the Lord's purposes for us are uh, very often hidden from us. And the way in which he does things are hidden too. David in Psalm 131 says that he reached the point where he stopped considering things that were too high for him and too difficult for him. That he learned like a, a winged child just uh, to sit at his mother's breast. He said, um, <clears throat> a, a weaned child um, in the process of weaning is unhappy that the breast is removed. 
that's being used to God uh, dealing with you and responding in a certain way. But God brought him to a place where he had to, to trust differently, to learn <laughs> to recognise that, that God's purpose is sometimes different. And uh, we sometimes have to recognise that too, that the Lord's interventions do not come necessarily in the form in which we expect them. But we need to recognise that God always has a purpose of good towards us and that his word won't fail either. And this is the dilemma, you see, because they thought they were clinging to his word. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever had that experience yourself where you were clinging to a promise of God uh, that you took as it appeared to you uh, right there on the page and only to discover later that it wasn't quite as it appeared on the page. The Lord was true to his word, but not in the way that you expected. I, I well remember a person who thought from a passage of scripture that he was going to live, only to realise later that he was actually going to die because he had misunderstood the passage of scripture. Now there's an element of that here, is there not? They thought that Christ's words meant he's not going to die and I will be glorified in healing him they're wrong. And what you'll always find in situations like that is that the Lord's, <clears throat> what the Lord is actually going to do for you is more than what you took from the promise. It's more. There's this element of exceeding abundant above that we can ask or think. I mean, if you were going to ask Martha and Mary a week after this, <clears throat> did the Lord do for you what he said he was going to do for you? They, they would say, he did more than what he said he was going to do. We thought for a while it was less, but lo and behold, it was more than what he expected him to do. So sometimes you, you don't need to let go of that promise. You maybe just need to, to say, well, how is this going to be fulfilled? Perhaps not in the way that I expected it. Now, there are plenty comforters in the home in Bethany. But from, for Mary and Martha, of course, there's only one comforter that they really need. We're the same ourselves. It's good when people comfort us, and we value people comforting, and especially we value people comforting us in the name of the Lord. And it's very, very true that the Lord can comfort us through his own people that are comforting us in his name. But at the same time, there is only one voice that we need to hear, especially when death comes sorrow and desolation, one voice and one person to be present. And that is the one who has called himself the Comforter. <clears throat> we associate the term Comforter with the Holy Spirit, or rightly so, but we ought not to confine it to the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Christ famously said, I will send you another Comforter, because that's what he is himself. He is our Comforter. And when the Lord delays he will encourage with his word. Now it was the duty of these women here um, <clears throat> to keep hold of what Christ said to them. It's easy to lose it when the providence begins to shift, but it's their duty to actually keep hold of it. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. The Lord sent that message to sustain them. 
to sustain them when the death would come. It wasn't Christ's purpose to deceive them into thinking something else. It was his purpose to keep them when the hour of grief came. And I'm quite sure both of them were going over these words, over and over, but not quite able to understand them. I think the Lord always gives us, when there's a delay, I think he always gives us a word. And I think the example of Jairus is interesting in that connection. Um, Jairus was, of course, in a hurry. Christ wasn't in the same hurry. But after he had dealt with the woman and he started moving again, the message came, don't bother. Uh, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. Jesus immediately turned to Jairus and said, don't be afraid, only believe. You notice uh, when, the, when the providence got tough, in came the word of God. And you'll find that if, if the Lord delays his coming to you, or if there's a, a misunderstanding or a, of some kind, or if there's a frustration, a providence that causes a frustration, get to God, get to prayer, get to his word, keep going over it, because the Lord will bring something to pass. My soul, wait thou with expectation on God. Wait on him with expectation. On my God alone, on him dependeth all my hope and expectation. <clears throat> And who better to, to think of this word than Mary especially, who we always find at Jesus' feet and we always find meditating on his word. And as the morning, four days after the death, that's a long time, as Martha famously said, that by this time the body stinks. So four days after the death, a messenger at last comes saying that Jesus is there. I think the sisters respond according to their natures. Martha is impulsive. She acts quickly. She's a very busy kind of person. Mary just simply stays until she's actually summoned by the Lord himself, which interestingly he does. After he's finished speaking to Martha, he says to her, go and get your sister. Martha comes into the room and uh, she says to Mary, the master is calling for you. The master is here and he's calling for you. Their words when they meet Jesus are similar. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Martha goes on to say something else, which I'll come to tonight, but that's what they said. If our brother, if you were here, our brother would not have died. What do they mean by that? Well, just briefly, I think first of all, we should say that whatever else it is, is a statement of faith. We don't know why you weren't here. We don't understand why you didn't come. But we do know that had you been here, our brother would not have died. And well may they say that. You'll know in the Gospels that no one ever died in Jesus' presence. You'll know too from the Gospels that no one ever stayed dead in Jesus' presence. The minute he comes into the womb of Jairus' daughter, he raises her from the dead. When he meets the funeral procession of the son of the widow of Nain, he raises him in his coffin. And here, when he comes across Lazarus, he raises him from the dead. 
This is the Prince of Life. He's bringing life into the world. He's bringing life through the Gospel and therefore death isn't allowed in his presence. Not at least while he lives. It's significant that uh, even the thieves on the cross only die after Jesus himself dies. So it's certainly true to say that had you been here, our brother would not have died. So it is a statement of faith. But like many statements of faith, it's issued along with perplexity and confusion. Just like the man who brought his son to Jesus to be healed and <clears throat> just at the feet of Jesus of course the, the evil spirit threw him into paroxysms and he was lying there convulsing on the ground and <clears throat> the man could lose hope at that point well here he is at the feet of Christ and seized by the power of the devil and the Lord asks him do you believe and he says I believe Lord he says help my unbelief how often we've been there how often we've said these words, I believe, Lord, help, help my unbelief. And are the sisters not saying that? Had you been here, yes, our brother would live, but why, Lord, were you not here? What was the reason for your not coming? We believe there was a good reason. We know there must be a good reason. And it's maybe not ours to ask. It's for you to know, maybe for you to reveal when the time's right to reveal, but why were you not here? But with that statement of faith and resignation and perplexity, there is also this kind of resignation that I was speaking about the other day. If this is the cup that we have to drink, well then, we will drink it. Because we believe, of course, that you are all wise all-powerful and all-good. Unexpectedly, Martha goes on to say something else. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What does she mean? Well, that's a good question that we'll consider tonight. May the Lord bless our thoughts on this word. Let us pray. <coughs> O eternal one teaches always to believe that the Lord is good and that the Lord does good. Delays are always perplexing to us as are providences that seem to negate the word. But the word will not be negated. And uh, not a word from your mouth will be without its fulfilment. <coughs> Truly this sickness was not unto death. Truly it was to the glory of God. And truly the Son of God was glorified in it. And so it will be in all our cups and in all our providences. And however dark the day, help us to keep hold of the light of the world. In whose name we pray. Amen. <coughs> uh, we'll bring your service to a close singing in Psalm 61.
and the opening uh, four stanzas of the psalm. O God, give ear unto my cry, unto my prayer attend, from the utmost corner of the land, my cry to thee I'll send. I think being in the utmost corner there is a, a sign that he was persecu- persecuted, uh, unable to to worship where he, he would wish and so on. And he says, what time my heart is overwhelmed and in perplexity. Now that's a difficult place to be in, but do thou me lead unto the walk that higher is than I. We've had experience of this before. Thou hast for my refuge been a shelter by thy power, and for defence against my foes thou hast been a strong tower. Within thy tabernacle I forever will abide, and under cover of thy wings with confidence. <coughs> Me hide. We'll stand to sing these verses to God's praise.